And so I will do everything in my power to try to communicate that love to you. And I'll ask you to do everything in your power to try to open yourself to believing it, to doubt your doubts that say God's not for you, and to open to what if what Christmas has to say is actually true. So let's pray and ask God's help in that, and then we're going to read God's word and study it together, because I think it has a lot to say to us this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the one who opens the eyes of the blind and opens the ears of the deaf. You are the one who makes the lame leap. You're the one who cleanses the unclean. You are the one who welcomes the unwelcomed, who heals the broken. Who forgives the ashamed. Who welcomes home the prodigal this morning we need that we need you to do that for us we need you to open our eyes i'm just begging you to open eyes this morning i know i don't have to but i am i'm asking you to do what you've already promised to do not because i don't trust you but because i do trust you and i know that i cannot that i'm just a man that these are just words unless your holy spirit falls unless your Holy Spirit does what only you can do, unless you conceive in us Jesus. So Father God, would you do that for your own glory, that you might receive all the praise and all the honor, that you might be given the thrones of our hearts. We pray all of this trusting in your Son Jesus, born at Christmas, died, buried, and rose again at Easter. pray in his name. Amen. Mark didn't know it, but he asked the kids what their uh, favorite part of Christmas is, and they set me up pretty well. Because I've been thinking uh, this week a lot about, uh, we've been asking the question, who needs Christmas? Who needs Christmas? And this week, we're going to take a turn, and you may have already seen it in the bulletin, we're going to talk to those who need Christmas. Is that me? Maybe. Let's see if it's batteries. I got batteries. We're going to preach from the pulpit today. That'll be hard. We'll be okay. We'll preach right here. Hey, so we, we're asking, uh, the who needs Christmas? The woefully rich. The woefully rich. And what do I mean by that? What am I thinking with that? Well, um, what I said last week is that everywhere around us during this season at Christmas, everywhere we look, there are echoes of eternity etched into our hearts and into our celebration. That all around us, our culture is crying out uh, for Christmas. We're desperate to. We're desperate to believe uh, in something bigger than ourselves, in something that goes on forever, in something uh, that can bring joy, that can heal us, that can, that can uh, separate us, that can illuminate the darkness in the world. We are dying for that. And everywhere around us we do. And so I've been thinking about this week, uh, what does Christmas mean to me? Remember that old song, uh, That's What Christmas Means to Me? I'd sing it to you, but I've already sung you Bon Jovi once. Um, and so I don't know that I can attempt uh, Stevie Wonder or uh, the Jackson 5 um, without embarrassing myself. 
And so I've been thinking about this. And as we think about the holiday Christmas, which has become integral to what it means to be a kind of a Western European descendant anywhere in the West, anywhere in, the, in North America, anywhere in Europe, a Christmas is this enormous, it's the biggest holiday of the year. And it's become this secular, a commercial holiday. But its roots are still grounded deep into Christianity that it can't make sense of it apart from Christianity. None of it makes any sense. None of the advertising, none of the branding, none of the stories we tell, none of the decorations we hang make any sense apart from its roots in Christianity. And yet, when we, think about Christ, when we think about Christmas, when we think about what it means to me, what it's about, we tend to think about a light in the darkness. And so we, we throw lights all over our houses. And shout out to in the Cleveland community down to like Weldon, that neighborhood down here on the left. There are two enormous houses down there that I don't want to pay their power bill. Like we, we could take up a collection and we'd still be short today. Um, they have so many lights, it's insane. Uh, but we put lights all over it and we celebrate lights and glitter and shimmer and sparkle and glitter everywhere. And then it's about family. It's about coming back together. It's about uh, being with people we love. And then it's about giving gifts. It's a season to give gifts. And then finally, um, in, in both uh, religious circles and in uh, secular, uh, irreligious circles, it's about giving uh, to the needy. It's a time when we're especially aware of those who are misfortunate. And so we see uh, last week in Smithfield, uh, the town of Smithfield and several churches and then uh, the public school system uh, got together to package uh, 10,000 meals uh, for Smithfield uh, Selma schools uh, to make sure that kids have food over the break much like our Stop Hunger Now event. Uh, it's year-end giving time, and so people uh, both start to think about tax deductions, but they also start to think about um, serving those who are less fortunate as we uh, spend ourselves on Black Friday and Cyber Monday and, uh, and all those things. It's a time that stuff comes together, and yet none of that makes any sense apart from Christianity. None of that makes any sense. Why? Because our celebration of light and our use of lights has to do with the fact that uh, Christians believe uh, that light has shone into the darkness. Uh, that John chapter 1 says uh, that the light has come into the darkness and the darkness has not comprehended it. The old King James said, it comprehendeth it not. That it hasn't overwhelmed it. It hasn't uh, put it out. And that our world is dark and, 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 and desperate and we need these glimmers of light and all of our hearts are so desperate for it that we'll drive to meadow and we'll spend hours hours waiting in line to just feel that glimmer that, that perhaps there is light perhaps and then we we come together around families and to, to be reminded that we're loved and yet that that's a sign that, that, that God has created a peace among uh, peoples and and it reminds me too that just it, gets, it should make us sad that our world is so divided that we need reasons to get together that we need reasons for our families to get together, that we need a holiday for people we love to come together. It's an indictment against us. And we talk about gifts, the reason Christians have given gifts, the reasons that there are, is because on Christmas, God gave us a gift. And that gift is so incredible, so awesome, so miraculous, so unbelievable that it then creates inside of us generosity that wells into others, that makes us want to be like God and, and give gifts. And so we see all these, and then finally, uh, we start to think about the needy, our, our desire to help those around us, that tradition at Christmas to, to serve the poor and the vulnerable and the meek and the mild exists because we remember that as Christians, we believe as Christians that when, when Jesus came into the world, when God was born into the world, when Mary gave birth, he did not come into an aristocratic or a noble or a royal family. No, he was born 
in a lowly family, and he grew up as a refugee in a foreign country, vulnerable and nearly murdered multiple times. And then we're reminded that God cares for the, the, the humble. God cares for those who are lowly. And so we, too, also uh, care for that. You see, uh, Christmas, we want it to be light and fluffy. We want it to be about, about sparkle and glitter and delicious food and, 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 and warm, rosy cheeks and, and sitting around a fire and reading Christmas carol together and hanging our stockings with care and, and going to bed happy. We want it to be that. And yet Christianity teaches that Christmas is also not just the most light and fluffy, it's the most realistic holiday there is. Because Christmas reminds us that the world is a dark place, that the world is, is broken, that the world is full of darkness. And at this very moment, right now, there are millions of people who live in refugee camps who are displaced. There are millions of people uh, who are being uh, killed because of uh, their race in places like Myanmar. Uh, there are millions of people who suffer uh, violence. There are hundreds of thousands of people being sold as slaves today. And Christmas is not this just light, happy, clappy a story about the world and, and hope and, and guessing in it. And it, it invades us. The brokenness of the world invades even our best stories. I'll give you a parenting fail. Yesterday, we were watching, was it yesterday? It was yesterday morning. I was drinking a cup of coffee and I was sitting oh, with my boys and we were watching a Christmas movie, The Santa Claus. I mentioned it last week. We were watching it together. And I'm obsessed with ugly Christmas sweaters. I have 12 of them. So if you ever need one, just borrow it. I'll take a deposit and you can bring it back to me. Um, and we're watching this thing and, and the Santa Claus is sitting there and he has this, this awesome ugly sweater. I mean, it's brilliant. It has like metal clasp and reindeer is doing like, um, like a can-can line on it. It was sweet. And I looked up and I said, man, that sweater is awesome. And John said, this is a really sad part of the movie. Like, that family just got ripped apart. And I just wept there on the floor, sitting there, and none of the kids watching. I'm just weeping because you're right. You're right. Our world is full of just families who've been ripped apart by death and divorce and selfishness and greed. And, and we don't need light and happy. We need real. We need a real Savior for the real world. And I was reminded this week by Timothy Keller, one of my favorite authors in this book, uh, The Hidden Christmas. He says that all of these themes that we're so hungry for come as a double-edged sword, but the message of Christmas is in some sense that Jesus comes as light because we are too spiritually blind to find our own way, that Jesus came and became mortal and he died because we are too morally ruined to be pardoned any other way, that Jesus came himself to us so that we and so we must give ourselves wholly to him we are therefore not our own christmas like god himself is both more wondrous and more threatening than we can imagine
Christmas is both more wondrous and more threatening, that Christmas brings both a diagnosis and a cure, and one cannot go without the other. We can't gravitate to the cure without accepting the diagnosis. And, and yet our human hearts are not going to want to do this. Our human hearts are going to want to try to push away the disease and hold on to the light. We're going to try to deny the darkness and yet grab for the light. We're going to try to push away the need, our emptiness, our empty-handedness, our brokenness, our, our desperate... Uh, uh, poor, poverty, and yet we're going we're gonna to hold on to gifts. We're going to try to focus on gifts. We're going to focus on gifts and not on the fact that unless God gives us anything, we got nothing. And what's crazy about this is this is not a claim. Christmas is not a claim uh, that can be uh, ignored or pushed to the side. Uh, the sentences that I just read, sentences that say Jesus had to become light for us because we are too spiritually blind to find God, which is what Christmas teaches, uh, that Jesus had to be born and die because we are so spiritually and morally ruined that we could not save ourselves and there's nothing that we could do to save ourselves and that Jesus has given himself wholly to us and so we must offer ourselves holy to him those are sentences that you cannot be indifferent towards because they demand everything of you they demand a response they they will shake you to your core if you ever grasp them and we will see that right here in matthew chapter 2 so i'm gonna work through it matthew chapter 2 verse 1 it says after jesus was born in bethlehem in judea during the time of king herod Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and they asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. Let's just stop right there. Let's just stop at verse 3. Because what we see is when Jesus is born, just at his very birth, at the the very start of it, uh, things happen. Things start to in motion from the very beginning that Jesus disrupts the world from his very birth. And he does so in two ways. First, he draws people from far away, namely the Magi. Those are the wise men. Uh, The Magi would be uh, astrologers or astronomers. They'd be like, I think of uh, Robert Duvall, the Conciliary, and and, uh, the Godfather. Uh, that they would be these guys who gave advice um, to, to kings and nobility, probably in Persia or Arabia. That's modern-day Iran or Iraq, um, if you are trying to keep geography straight in your head. And, and they're, they're not kings, they're not, uh, but they, they would be in the court. They would be um, like the cabinet of the kings there. And they come. And so Jesus' birth moves these powerful people, but it also shakes powerful people to their core. You see in verse 3, King Herod heard this and he was disturbed. Disturbed might be one of the greatest understatements in the Bible. He was shaken to his core. You see what happens is that these men, these magi, these, uh, these astronomers and astrologers, these men, wise men come to a palace and there's a dude sitting on the throne and they say, where is the king? When you ask the guy sitting on the throne, where is the king, and you're not talking about him, he starts to get nervous. And the Bible doesn't tell us right here, uh, but we know that Herod is one of the most paranoid kings to ever live because Herod is a, uh, he is a self-made man. He thinks of himself as a self-made man. He was shrewd and politically cunning, and he gained his status as king uh, by being more shrewd, more cunning, uh, more ruthless than anybody alive uh, in his day and time. He is an Idumean, which means he's not from the royal line of, uh, uh, of the Jewish family. He's not from the clan of David. He's not a whole-blooded Jewish, and yet he has uh, bought and killed his way into kingship. He is, he is both um, 
grown through, through paying the right people, uh, paying Rome, and then he's also uh, gained by, by murder, by uh, destroying. And now he has it. He is, he is now, uh, finally, he believes himself to be king. He believes that he is king. And sure, he's king under Rome, but at least he's king of Judea and Israel, which is something nobody has been uh, in a long time. And he's got great influence and great power. He thinks of himself as magnanimous and benevolent. He builds incredible public works. He builds coliseums. He builds um, baths. He builds these palaces on the lake. Um, he, he builds uh, amphitheaters and, and, and all this, uh, these enormous public works. He rebuilds the temple. And he thinks of himself as magnanimous. And yet he lives an insecure, hostile life. He's so insecure, he's petrified of losing his throne that he, uh, has, we, we know uh, from history uh, that he killed multiple wives because he thought they were conniving against them and he killed multiple of his own sons because he thought they were conspiring against them. This is what happens when you live as the king of your life because Jesus uh, comes in and these magi say, "Who? where is the king? Where is the king? You see, each of us, has this natural, this innate, this God hostility in us uh, that wants to be king of our own lives, captains of our own spiritual ships, masters of our own destiny. And we weren't built to live that way. And yet, and so when it's attacked, we get very defensive. You may be like King Herod if you find yourself uh, to be a very defensive person. Everybody seems to always be attacking you. Somebody corrects you and you lash in anger. You've never done anything wrong. If you have not apologized in the last month, it's because you are so self-deluded uh, that you can't see your own mistakes. And even if you can see them, you can't admit them because admitting them would make you vulnerable to being usurped and somebody stepping in and taking over your kingdom and colonizing you. This is one of the great dangers of the woefully rich. When we have enough to have some sphere of influence, some big enough sphere, when we have power and influence, when we have a big enough house that we can, we can call it our kingdom, when we have enough people who respect us, uh, then we, we start to believe that we are self-made people, that we're self-made men and women, that we got here because we're smart, because we worked hard. And we forget we're not the king, we work for the king. One of the chief ways to know if you think of yourself as the king or not, as we see this when it comes to it, we'll start to say, we'll start to negotiate with God. Start to negotiate, God, Jesus, I will follow you if you will do such and such and such and such. I will, I will be your disciple if you do such and such and such and such. What we're actually saying, and Keller points this out beautifully, is I'm not asking God to, I'm not asking Jesus uh, to be my Lord. I'm asking Jesus to be my advisor. Jesus, how about you give me your best ideas, and if I like them, I'll implement them in my life. And if I don't like them, then I'll do what I was going to do anyways. How many times do we go to the scriptures that way? We read the Bible, we, we get pumped when it affirms what we already thought, but when, we, when, it, when it attacks a, a habit in our lives, when it attacks the way we use words, when it attacks our chief loyalties, then we just ignore that part of the Bible because we're not asking Jesus to be Lord over us or King over us. We're asking him to be our advisor, to just make our lives a little bit better, to help protect us from mistakes, uh, to lead us in ways of righteousness as long as it's going the right way, as long as my will and God's will happen to line up. When it comes to the points where my will and God's will don't line up, I get to be king, and God has to take a back seat. God gets to be, I mean, Jesus gets to be magi. 
And that's the exact opposite of the Magi, right? These incredibly wealthy men. Uh, They're not kings, but they're wealthy as kings. And we see that because they ride on camels and they bring incredibly valuable, incredibly expensive gifts to him. But these these men, uh, and maybe women, I don't know, uh, these wise men, uh, they show up and they are humble. They, They show up and they take the role of wise men. They say, you be king and we will just be a here. What's fascinating is you would imagine that a Magi, right? Um, a Magi actually, coming from a foreign country, demotes their king. Can you imagine that conversation? Hey, I need vacation. Why? Because I'm going to worship another king. Can you imagine you work for the king and you're like, why? I need, it'd be like the, the Secretary of State goes in uh, to President Donald Trump's office and, hey, I need some vacation. Why is that? Why do you need vacation? I need to go swear allegiance uh, to Kim Jong-il. I'll be back in about a month and a half. Like, can you imagine how that conversation goes, what they risk in going? And so first we see uh, that, that Jesus uh, attacks our kingdomness, that, that he humbles it, that he kicks me off the throne of my life, that he kicks us off the throne of our lives, that he shows us that everything we have, that everything we've built, the house we have, the family we built, we built with things that were given to us, that we are not kings. We are, uh, we've been given everything we have, that we're not self-made men. And there are going to be some of us, many, many, many of us who, like Herod, cannot accept that truth, cannot accept that we are not self-made men and cannot submit to God's will, cannot, because it's, it's too humiliating. It, just, it, it feels like it robs me of agency. But as I've said before, if you think you're a self-made man, how did you get there? Like you didn't pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Who gave you a pair of boots? What hand, what, with hands, who gave you hands? I know you worked hard. I know you're smart. But you're smart because you have a brain and that was a gift. And you worked hard because you had energy and food to do so. Second, though, we see in this is that one of the things is that Jesus or that, uh, that gets attacked next is uh, the wisdom. We see uh, that when Jesus is born, he comes uh, attacking the wisdom of the world. He comes and he humbles. He, he relativizes uh, the wise ones in the world. He comes and not only does he humble the kings, those who are proud of what they have and their power, but he comes and he humbles those who think themselves wise. That in his presence, uh, wisdom gets humiliated. And we see this, um, the two responses to that. Because first we see that God, in his infinite uh, wisdom, comes as a little baby in a refugee family to a girl with no pedigree, who's not even married. He attacks all of what we think a king should be, all of what we want God to do, which is to banish and destroy and to, to, to uh, obliterate our enemies. And yet God doesn't do that. He comes in, in an infant, infant holy, infant lowly, and it appears foolish. It appears ridiculous. No other, uh, no other uh, religion on the world uh, would say the things we say. Think about like Isaiah 9, right? Isaiah 9 is a prophecy that is given to the Jewish people and everything in Judaism, everything in Judaism is there to reinforce God's holy otherness, that God is one, that God is holy, that he is just, that he is unapproachable. He dwells in unapproachable light, uh, that he will not pardon the guilty, uh, that he he surely will not overlook um, unrighteousness. And yet, Isaiah 9 prophesies that a baby, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be 
wonderful counselor, prince of peace, everlasting father, almighty God. What? What? This baby, this human being will be wonderful counselor, prince of peace, everlasting father, almighty God. That somehow in the midst of a religion that says God is, God is holy other, God is distinct from and separate from a humanity. There's a prophecy that says a child is going to be born who will be called by four names, all of which refer specifically to the person of God. That's foolishness. God cannot be a human. That's what makes God God. Is God is God and I'm not. And so we see this, and there's two responses to it. First, we see uh, the, the, the rejection of this, this I will, not be, I will not submit to this. It makes no sense. I cannot fathom it. We see this in uh, King Herod. If we keep going on, right, it says in verse 4, it says, When Herod had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, Herod asked them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said, In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and he said, Go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose, went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and they presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone... When, he, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said to the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in his vicinity who were two years old and younger in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. We see uh, first in the, the prophecy that's fulfilled, where will this child be born? It'll be born not in Jerusalem, not in a palace, but in Bethlehem, in this low place. We see that God is prefiguring this foolishness that it's from the low, it's from the, the meek, it's from the, the humble that he will raise up uh, the king. We see Herod immediately responds in anger because he gets outwitted in verse 16. You see that? When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. He's furious because his wisdom has been impugned not just by the Magi, but by uh, the God of the universe who has declared that this child, this, this nobody born nowhere, will be king and will usurp his throne. And he's, he's furious about this. He cannot imagine being disobeyed. He cannot imagine not being the smartest person in the room. He cannot imagine uh, that, that he would be outwitted by these magi. He thinks his plan is perfect, right? He tells them just what they need to know. He's going to make them do their dirty work. They'll never know it. They're double-blind um, fools and he is going to use them but he gets outsmarted and it makes him furious 
Whereas the Magi, who are wise men, whose job is to counsel, what do they do when they, get to the, when they get to the manger, when they get to the house? They're not actually at the manger. They're in a house at this point. There is no manger here. Uh, they're in a house. What do they do? I never noticed this. They're wise men. What's their job? To give advice. What's the one thing they do not do anywhere in the story? They never give advice. You would imagine these wise men to sit down and talk to Mary and to Joseph and to say, Mary and Joseph, here's what's going to happen. You need to be prepared for this. You need to be watching out for this. You need to look out. Herod's going to try to do this, and Herod's going to try to plan this out. Jesus, when you grow up, uh, Jesus is probably like, he's somewhere between zero and two years old. So they're trying to give him, do they give him advice? No. What do they do? They kneel before him and worship. So those people who, whose job is to give advice, don't give any. And, those, and the other one, Matt, the, Herod is giving advice to everybody. Go and do this and get that and come back. And when he, nobody takes his advice, he's furious. Christmas means that all the human wisdom in the world is not enough, that we're not smart enough to philosophize, we're not smart enough to think our way to God, to hypothesize our way to God, or to think um, our way out of the predicament, that all the human thinking in the world is foolishness compared to the wisdom of God, that it gets trivialized, that, that all of our science cannot advance to the point where it can overcome the human heart, that, that science, apart from godliness, leads to the Holocaust and a nuclear, revolu- a, a nuclear holocaust. That's, that's where science leads, that science and technology, apart from godliness, apart from regeneration, leads ultimately to destruction leads to dystopian futures which plague our science fiction movies. Have you noticed that lately? That every new science fiction movie we make is dystopian. That we are becoming more and more cynical that science will lead anywhere other than a zombie apocalypse. Because we can't think our way out of this. That philosophy can't help us out of this. That human reason cannot. You see, all of philosophy and all of theology... And every other spirituality says, this is the way to spirituality. Whereas Jesus says, I am spiritual reality itself, and I've come here to you, that you can't get to me, and so I came here. And Herod can't handle it. And maybe you can't either. That you are not your own, you're not the wisest person in the world. But we need it. We need to be humbled by this so that we'll listen, so that we'll submit to God's way of life, so that we will, 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 will lay underneath him and let him guide us and comfort us. And lastly, um, we see that this humbles all of our wealth, that it relativizes our idols. We see that um, we've talked about Herod's idols of power and wisdom, and now we see it when it comes to wealth, comfort, and spiritual laziness. That if Jesus is who he says he is, if Jesus is, if Jesus is who he says he is, then he demands everything. Then he, he is wholly worthy of my life. Then I'll say anything you want. I'll do anything you want because you're the, you're the boss. You're the God of the universe. And not only are you the God of the universe and I'm an ant. No, you are the God of the universe who has stepped into creation, who has stepped into the broken world, who lives as a refugee, who loved us enough to die for us, that you deserve all of my life. And either that's true or it's not true. And Jesus is insane. And Jesus is utterly insane and should be shunned, rejected, feared, run away from. Those are really the only two options when you take things like Isaiah 9, which says, this child is everlasting father, almighty God. 
Either that's true, and he deserves your utmost total allegiance and all your access, all your resources, and he deserves a blank check. He deserves wallet, resources, everything on the table. Jesus, all I am, my body, my hands, my family, my house, my, my money, my cars, all of it's yours. You can do what, with it what you want. Either that's true, or Jesus, get away from me. Go away. Go to prison. Go away. We see the Magi come and they bear gifts fit for a king. They give him the best things they have to offer. They give him the things they themselves uh, must want. They give uh, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And I'm not going to talk about any symbology there, any symbolism there. They give gifts fit for a king. They give him their very best. Whereas Herod, what does Herod do? Herod doesn't do anything. Herod will not walk the five miles to investigate for himself. Five miles, he can't. These guys had to ride camels from the other side of nowhere. Herod can't go five miles. Herod won't spend a dollar until he's angry, until he's outwitted. He won't spend, he won't send a gift. He won't send somebody he trusts. He's too lazy for all that because he thinks he's too smart and he doesn't have any need. It reminds me of the words in Revelation chapter 3. We'll read these and then we'll turn towards our application. Revelation chapter 3. This is the church, to the church in Laodicea, starting at verse uh, 14. This is a letter that Jesus writes to a church in a place called Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, starting at verse 14. It says, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you have become lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Why have they become hot neither hot nor cold. Why have they become lukewarm? Why are they just living like Christmas means, eh, whatever. Joy to the world, sure. I'm down for that. Why can they interact with Jesus as if it doesn't demand all or nothing? Why? Because they've forgotten that he's ruler of the creation. And then verse 17 tells us why they've forgotten this. Verse 17, this ought to scare Americans to death, especially middle-class Americans. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. And I do not need a thing, but you do do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. They're lukewarm because they don't think they need anything. They have everything they want. And it is God's mercy at Christmas to attack our relative wealth, to attack our, 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 our wisdom, to attack our, our complacency and our laziness. It is God's mercy at Christmas. It is the message of Christmas that you cannot be good enough to earn your salvation. You can't be smart enough to think your way to Jesus. You can't be rich enough to buy your salvation. That you cannot, uh, there's nothing you have that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. It is God's mercy that Christmas exposes all of humanity, me included, as wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. It's mercy that he humbles us. And the first thing he tells us to do is come to him because if I don't realize I'm pitiful, poor, wretched, and naked, I will, I will be content in my house wearing whatever this clothes are, cowboy boots, and thinking that I've fooled all of you into respecting me. 
I'm a pretty decent human being, that I'm worthy of your life, your respect, the money you pay me. Instead, he says, come to me and I will give you gold refined by fire so you can become actually spiritually rich. And I'll give you white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. I'm disciplining you. I'm rebuking you because I love you, verse 19 says. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I'm right here. Verse 19, verse 20, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with that person and they with me. And so right here at Christmas, friends, Jesus is knocking and he's saying, this house is a house of straw. This life you've built is not as impressive to anybody other than you. This And I don't mean that to depress you. I just mean that to tell you the truth because Jesus wants to give you someone better, something that is secure, something that cannot burn in a fire, something that cannot uh, be stained by your sin, something that is is stain repellent. He wants to give you the ability to see the world rightly. He's here and he's knocking, he's begging to come in. Will you let him? So what do we do if this is us? What do we do with our kingdoms? What do we do with our wealth and our wisdom? Last week, I finished preaching about Jesus. Who needs Jesus? Those who are overlooked and insignificant and poor. Who needs Christmas? They do. And who needs Christmas? The rich do. We need each other. So friends, I need to humble myself by realizing I desperately need to be connected with those in need. I'm challenging this week to meet Jesus where Jesus was born, to meet him in the refugees. Our world is full of them. Our world is full of them with nowhere to go because no country wants them. Europe has taken as many as it can. Australia won't take any. Bless the refugees somehow. The poor, there's poor all over the place. We had to feed, the fact that we have 10,000 students in Smithfield Selma schools who need food over the break. Are you kidding me? You kidding? That's a world we're dying for where we let 10,000 kids? Yeah, Jesus said it was. So let's meet the hungry. Let's, let's bless them. Meet Jesus this Christmas by doing, giving, serving the least and the lost. And if you consider yourself one of those, he'll meet you there as you serve those around you who are also lost and least and left out. Let's pray. Jesus, your words come to us and they cut us to the quick. They attack our kingdoms and they attack our idols and they attack our wisdom. And We think we're smarter than you. I honestly think when I'm, this week I honestly thought I could do your job better than you. And I told you that to your face and, and I was wrong. And if we're true, if we're true to ourselves, we tell you the truth, many, many days we think we could do your job better than you can. We think we could better protect the people around us if we had your power and your resources. That we could better make people righteous and godly if we had your power and your resources. But we just step out of the way and get off the throne of our hearts and ask you to lead us, to come, be Christmas in our lives, to humble us, to bring us low so that we might sit next to Mary and Joseph, that we might risk everything our reputation and our future and our health in order to welcome you, Jesus, and to make you famous in the world, in order to bless the world with the knowledge of your son, Jesus, that we, like the Magi, would spend whatever it takes to know you, that we would ask whatever questions are necessary to know you. I'm humbled by the fact that the wisest men in the story only ask questions. 
They never make any declarative statements. Everything that everything they say ends in a question mark. Would you give us wisdom like that? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Because Jesus has come to us at Christmas, we don't have to give to God. We get